Well, okay, folks, I'm going to get underway. I've got so much to cover, and uh, I, I want to leave room as well for discussion uh, on this topic. Uh, this is a, um, I think, a very, very practical topic about um, mending broken relationships because everybody in this room has that, had that experience. There's not a person that is alive that has an encounter broken relationships. Some people, I've met people that haven't talked to a, a sister in 30 years or haven't seen their mom in 10 years or whatever. You know, there's always a, a tale uh, that people have to tell about relationships that somehow have gone off the rails and uh, never have been able to get back and be reconciled. And so what we're going to be talking about today is the great value of reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation is extremely important. <clears throat> we need to understand it uh, so that we can apply it. And we need, uh, one of the things I'll say in the notes there, among other things, is that when you have breaks in relationships, you must remain faithful to a biblical solution. Uh, don't go on your own with that. Don't become subjective, but look at the objective truth of God's word and say, how, how can we fix this relationship? What guidance do we get from the scripture on how we might do that? So I'll say that at the beginning, I'll emphasize that as we go on. Let's take a moment and ask the Lord to give us some help today, and then we'll dig in. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, it's with great joy to be here with my dear brothers and sisters and to interact about a very practical aspect for life, and that is how we can mend the brokenness of relationships and all of the damage, the collateral damage oftentimes that comes with it. And Lord, help us to understand exactly what you have to say about the way we might do this, uh, the procedures that you give us, the condition of our heart, where our heart has to be when it comes to the matter of forgiveness and restoration and all of those things that are so very important in this topic. So grant to me clarity of thought and speech as I try to make this truth known. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to thank my good friend, uh, Pastor Jeremiah, for filling in for me. Um, <clears throat> as you know, I've been, I was asked by uh, Pastor Rich to deliver the sermon last Sunday. And so uh, I did that. And, and I looked at my schedule and realized that last Sunday was also the first class for this. This happens to me frequently um, <clears throat> and where I double booked myself. So after contemplating doing both at the same time, like preaching 20 minutes in the auditorium, teaching 20 here, going back and forth, I decided, no, I'll ask Jeremiah to fill in for me and I will do the preaching. But last week when you met together, uh, one of the major lessons you learned is the essential fundamental cause of relationships fracturing. Does anybody remember what that is? The fundamental reason why relationships get fractured. Pride. pride. And what is pride? Sin. Sin. So, you know, when I did the study, when I was preparing for this study of this topic, 
I said, I want to go back to when relationships first got fractured. <clears throat> and so I found myself in Ezekiel and in the book of Isaiah reading about the fracture of the relationship between God and Satan. That was the first one that fractured when Satan became sinfully prideful. Pride is the very first sin that was committed. And oftentimes, by the way, pride is a hindrance to reconciliation and restoration. So, and then I looked after that and I found out that sin was the problem between Adam and Eve and God. It broke that relationship up. Then I looked in Adam and Eve's family and I found sin where one sibling murdered the other. I mean, that's the ultimate example of sin. And it's always sin that's at the heart of fractured relationships. Now, they don't always start with sin. Um, I mentioned in the first paragraph that there's two ladies that you don't want to come to your house, to your business, or your church. They are miscommunication and misunderstanding. Those two things cause people to develop sometimes sinful attitudes toward one another. It began not with sin, but just a misunderstanding or the communication was flawed in some sense. And then that begins the, the run downward, if you will, where people begin to develop an adversarial attitude toward another person because of a miscommunication or misunderstanding. And we'll talk more about that as we go. Um, there, after that first little paragraph, there's another paragraph on page one. It says, the best way to diffuse ongoing atmosphere of conflict and hostility is to replace your desire for being right with a greater value for getting right through the healing process. Now, that is a big barrier. Let me tell you, it's a big barrier when people have conflict with one another. Somebody dedicates themselves to being right. And the dedication to getting right is not equal to the dedication of being right. And when that happens, it's real hard to mend a broken relationship. It's a caustic attitude to maintain. And many people, uh, that I've had people say, I will never forgive that person for what they, they have done. And I will, will remind them, when you came to know Jesus, were you forgiven of your sins? Yes. Were you forgiven of all of your sins? Yes. I said, aren't you happy that God says, I will never forgive him for whatever it was? I'm so happy about it. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of sins in my life that God could have justifiably said, I will never forgive him, but he did. And so he asked us to forgive people like he has forgiven us. You're going to learn that when we get to forgiveness. That's your standard. Your standard for forgiveness is the way God forgave you. And so we'll see that as we go on. So let's talk about reconciliation. That's the word here. It's in the blue uh, print there. Uh, biblical reconciliation is the process of two previously alienated parties coming to peace with each other. Because God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, we can reconcile with each other, no longer counting our offenses against one another. In other words, God has reconciled you and me to him. There's peace now in our relationship. And he has given us the capacity 
because we have new life in Christ to be reconciled even with the people that we live with all the time, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, even our family members and other relatives. Now, the word reconciliation comes from the Greek word katalasso, and it refers to the restoration of a relationship that's out of order. Uh, Katalasko really, in its original form, talks about um, the exchange of, of money, like uh, Canadian money for American money, <laughs> so that you, you come up to the equal outcome of the different currencies. That's the way the word, what the word meant literally, but it also has been used throughout the Bible to describe what it means to take relationships that had been fractured and to bring them together so that they're harmonized, so that there's no longer an adversarial nature, that there is now peace and friendship and intimacy in that relationship that had been lost because of conflict. So when you look at that definition there, the second um, sentence in there in that paragraph says, it is to restore somebody to a favorable or friendly relationship that had become adversarial or caustic. It is to resolve conflicting differences, resulting in the absence of warfare and a harmonized relationship of peace and tranquility. That's our aim, actually, in this class, is to assist people to perhaps... Now, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of contributing factors when you have a broken relationship. There's a lot of things that made it that way, but perhaps through the vehicle of just following what Scripture says about reconciliation, perhaps relationships that have been out of order for some time can be brought together back into harmony. That's my ambition, that we would learn to do that. Now, I have, I have to tell you, I have, I have relationships that uh, I've never been able to reconcile. We've had a difference, and I have never been able to reconcile. And so at some point, I need to explain, well, why is that? Why is it that you sometimes can't find reconciliation as the end result? Because it does happen. It does happen. But with everything within us, we have the power. We have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. We've got the Word of God to guide us. We should have the mindset that God would want us to have toward relationships. And we should be able to bring restoration. But there are dynamics that we can't control. There are... Um, contributing factors that are beyond our ability to control them. And that's what uh, causes a relationship to fracture over time. You know, you may have a willingness, but the other person needs to have a willingness too. And sometimes you can't control that. You wish you could control that. You may have even tried to go to a person and brought reconciliation and it didn't work. So we'll talk more about that. Next paragraph. It says, we know that our God has a great value for reconciliation and uh, because he is the one who initiated the ability for reconciliation to take place in the relationship between sinful man and the holy God. Now, what I'm going to do is I, I want to go through these passages and I want you to tell me what truths about reconciliation do you see. And I'm not looking for some, something deep and hidden. <laughs> I'm not asking for that. Because if it's deep and hidden, chances are you've made it up. Uh, um, what I'm looking for is some of the obvious truths about reconciliation that you find in these passages. 
And I want to take you to for, I want to take you to Romans first. I know it's got First Corinthians listed, but I want to look at Romans chapter five, and then I just want you to tell me what did you notice about reconciliation in that passage, Romans chapter five. I'll be there in a minute. There I am. And uh, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. It says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So what are some of the obvious truths that emerge from this text? There's one big one right at the beginning. We're yeah. So um, we're, we, were, we were his enemies. And uh, what's very, very important is that he didn't wait for us to be reformed. In other words, he didn't wait for us to get in line with his will before he started the process. It's very interesting to me that God was the one who took the first step because we weren't. You understand that our spiritual condition was such that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and there wasn't a value, there wasn't an interest in our hearts to want to be reconciled with God. But it's God who takes this initiation so that you and I can have a harmonized relationship with him. How did he do it according to this passage? Take a look at it, both verses. How did he, how did he achieve this reconciliation? Through Jesus what? Yeah, he, his blood. Um, the currency of reconciliation between man and God is the blood of Christ shed in our behalf. That's a high price. I, I, I think that's why I want to tell you or remind you that right off from the very beginning, this passage tells me of the great value that my God has on reconciliation. Because those whom he created, you and I, were captured in sin, dead in sin, indifferent to God, irreverent to God, did not treat him with the respect that he should have been treated with. And without a change in us, he instituted the plan of reconciliation. Wow. Take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Unless you saw something else there that you want to bring up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17 and through 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. So in other words, the love that he talked, the love of God that he talked about in verse 14, the love of of Christ uh, demonstrated at the cross, which became the compelling dynamic for his ministry. That is from God. And 
the fact that a person is now made a new creation, that is from God. And now he's going to talk about something else that is initiated and from God. Next passage. Now, all, verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, what are the truths that you see here in this particular passage? What do you see here? Pardon me? Yeah, we're ambassadors. Uh, what's an ambassador? Does anybody know? Yeah, it's a representative usually of a superior to carry out a particular task. And our task is what? Why are we our ambassadors? What are we supposed to communicate? What was that? Reconciliation. I'm, I'm sorry. Reconciliation. Yeah, the whole idea that reconciliation with God is now available and the central message that we're to communicate is the gospel message. The gospel message is the message that talks about how sinful man could be made right with the holy God. That is a major question. The thing that is most impressive to me is in the book of Job, which some theologians think was chronologically the very first book written and that made its way into the canon of scripture. Now, the reason they say that is because Job seems like he's from the era of Abraham and Abraham existed long before Moses when Moses began to write, you know, under divine inspiration. And so many people say that that book may perhaps be the oldest. And it's interesting because its theme is a theme that's been around for years all the existence of mankind has dealt with this theme. And the theme is, how, does, how, how, how can God treat a righteous man or allow a righteous man to go through such terrible difficulty? And so that whole book really deals with that question. But one of the repeated questions that was asked by Job and some of his friends in one way or other, they kept on asking this question, how can a sinful man be made right with God? So way back, Way back, Job was wondering, how can a sinful man be made right with God? Now, to be made right with God is another term describing reconciliation. And of course, now we know that sinful people can be made right with God through the gospel message. And so we're ambassadors. We're out there basically um, telling people how they could be made right with God. Uh, Dr. MacArthur said that once when he was asked on a plane, he was uh, doing some work on a sermon and one, a guy next to him said, so what, what's the nature of your job? And he said, well, I tell people how they can have all their sins forgiven. Are you interested? That's, that's a message of reconciliation because people know by nature that their sin has separated them from God. They know that. They know some have given up. They've said, I'm, I'm just going to go to hell. What does that mean? I'm going to be eternally separated from God. And it also means this, when a person says, listen, I'm on my way to hell. It also means that they haven't heard the message of reconciliation. They haven't heard the good news that they can be made right with the holy God.
Now, what other, what other truths are here besides the ambassador issue? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say the key one is the Romans passage says that we were enemies and Christ is the catalyst Yeah. through his blood. Yeah. And then here it says when that happens, we're a new creation. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're changed by... That's right. When we come to know Christ, matter of fact, people often say to me, "What what is the chief, what is the chief uh, characteristic of uh, being converted?" And that is the transformation that is made in your life, and that transformation is a product of reconciliation. You have been reconciled to God. You're a new creature in Christ, and now the old things of your old life are passing away, and the new things are coming. You see. So yeah, there's another one. I kind of, it's almost a principle that we covered the first time we read the passage, yeah. We have the ministry of reconciliation. So now God has given us the privilege. In other words, you have been made right with God, and now he's given you the privilege to tell other people how they can be made right with God. And that, again, is through the gospel message and the shed blood of Christ. Somebody else? Yes, sir. So now we have to overcome our pride. Yes, to demonstrate this ministry and walk it out, truly walk. Yeah, we need a good dose of courage. I think some of us, when it comes to the gospel, need a a spine transplant. (laughs) Uh, I understand that. It's kind of a frightening thing sometimes when you think about it, and then it isn't when you get involved in sharing the gospel. But there's another truth here, and I don't want you to miss it. Pardon me? Yeah, we, 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 the amazing thing about reconciliation, get this folks, is not only have you been made right with God, but the very rightness of God, the rightness of Christ has been placed to your account. So God sees you through the grid of the righteousness of Christ. Uh, that's what he meant. He, he became, Jesus became what he was not, which is sin so that we could become what we were not, the righteousness of God. (laughs) And so that was a part of the process of reconciliation and what it achieved. But there's something else that I want you to see here. What do you think it is? It's more about being made right, being being reconciled. Being reconciled. I would take that as meaning we have an aspect of partnership in this work. Yeah, we do. we respond. We, we need to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. Um, we also have to follow the model that he pursued. Uh, again, the main principle that comes off right at the very beginning around verse 18 is that, okay, put it this way, who initiated this whole reconciliation thing? Yeah. I mean, it's so clear, isn't it? Verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Now, get this. God did not need to be reconciled to us. We needed to be reconciled to him. He never committed a sin. He never offended us. But we lived a lifestyle of offending him. And he initiated that and caused us to be made right with God. Yes, Mike. You better be ready to be humble. Yeah. That's exactly true. Um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense, uh, that Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, where it says, do not think more highly of yourself 
that's the essence of humility, that you have an appropriate, proper thinking. You also know that in your relationship with God, you need to be humble and repent of your sin. In your relationship with others, humility goes a long way in the process of reconciliation. Because the big barrier, one of the big barriers that we'll talk about to the repairing of broken relationships is pride. We come to that again. It was the first sin committed. It is the sin that is committed continuously that keeps people from being reconciled. Somebody's being prideful, you see, and um, so forth. And we'll see that as we go on. One other passage. Let's look at that, Colossians. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 19, or chapter 1, verse 19. <laughs> I'm, I'm currently working on writing Colossians <laughs> chapter 19. That was the unedited version. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I got too excited, you know. I, uh, boy, I can tell. Today's going to be a great day for me. Um, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It's talking about the deity of Christ. And through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So what do you see, again, as some of the truths that emerge here in this passage? Does this passage teach that mankind was eager to reconcile with God? No, I think it's important that you realize that. God was eager. Yeah. In his good pleasure. In his good, it, was, it pleasured God to put into you know, in, into actual practical, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Practical use, the capacity for mankind to now be reconciled to him. We were what? What is it? How does this describe us? We were alienated. We were hostile. We were engaged in evil deeds. And so God initiated reconciliation of us while we were in that particular situation. And now we have peace, peace with God, tranquility, absence of an adversarial relationship. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, because you have been justified in Christ, you now have peace with God. Understand, because God was willing to initiate this reconciliation, he was willing to pay the necessary price for reconciliation to be achieved. The end result now is if you're born again, you have um, a harmonized relationship with the living God. Uh, you are at peace with him. He, you, you don't wait for him to come to you as a judge, but you come, he comes to you as your savior and you are a part of his family. You are a child of God. You have peace with God. Peace is always the ultimate objective of reconciliation in relationships with people. 
what you want is you want to be able to have a friendly, peaceful, non-awkward relationship with individuals. And that is only achieved through great and careful biblical reconciliation. All right. So we've seen that God, would you agree with me, at least in, on this principle, that God has a great value for reconciliation? I mean, that is, and he, he wants to see that, we're going to see, he wants to see that in us as well, that we would have the same value. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus wanted to do was to straighten out the Pharisees from the notion that, you know, just avoid avoiding the actual doing of a sin does not mean that you have not sinned. That's a big part of what he conveys in the Sermon on the Mount. Just because you have not actually taken the action of something doesn't mean that you have not sinned in your heart because you have developed a sinful attitude. And so he wants to make that clear. The Pharisees were very rigid about that. You only sinned if you committed the act. Jesus is saying, matter of fact, he told his apostles, and we'll read a passage on that in a minute, that all sin comes from the heart. So it's in the heart that you commit the sin before you take the action. And this is a classic example of this in verse 21. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, how many people have not committed murder here in this room? <laughs> ah, see, there's one. See, I think you all got what I said there. You just came in. You didn't miss the part. Yeah. But yeah, actually, I remember when I was doing the study of the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, I was doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of that with our congregation. When I first began the, you know, the looking at each ten, I thought, well, there are some in here I probably haven't committed. But at the initial stages of studying, I've discovered that I've broken all of them, at least in my heart. You know what I mean? Not, not so much in action, but in my heart, I have broken them all. And so he's going to tell you how you do that, unfortunately. Verse 22, but I say to you that every one... And remember, he says, everybody tells you not to commit murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, Areca, you empty headed fool. In other words, these are the derogatory terms that flow from an angry heart. Would you not agree? I mean, you have to be pretty angry with the person if you go to that extent. If you start calling them by names that are very, very uh, offensive and harsh, that means that it doesn't mean, you know, you empty-headed fool, let's have dinner together. You know, that isn't, you big jerk, you fool, you idiot, you, I wish you were never born. Kind of a, 
I, I, I think it was my subconscious, Mark. <laughs> it was a subconscious thing, buddy. I didn't know. <laughs> but, you know, he says, you, you call your brother that. He said, you shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. What in the world? Because he's saying, you have the heart, you just don't have the action yet. But you have a heart that's ready for the action. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so if you have someone that you know and they're sinning and you call them out on their sin, yeah. you call them a sinner, Yeah. your heart, well, I was trying to say, like, what if in your heart you're angry at them still? And yeah. You're calling them that. Yeah. It's not mm -hmm. like you're at peace inside, but you're calling them well, Jesus demonstrates to us uh, uh, someone who is quite angry at these Pharisees. And, uh, and in his anger, he spoke some pretty harsh words to them. He said that they were a whitewashed sepulcher. You know, he said that you make your disciples worse than you are. I mean, he was... And by the way, when he went into the temple and he saw what was going on, um, you know, he, he, had, he made a whip and he started flipping the tables, he, he didn't like the idea that the bingo players were, was it bingo? No, what was it? <laughs> they were selling stuff in the temple, I don't know what it was. But he flipped the tables and he threw them all over and stuff were flying all over and he had a whip in his hand and I, I think he intended to use it. Um, in other words, he was righteously angry. There's a big difference between that. 98% of our anger is not righteous. Let's face it. <laughs> um, Well, it, you know, even though I'm, yeah. I think I'm initially trying to help this person, wouldn't it just be? Yeah, there's, there, if a person is a sinner, there's nothing wrong with describing reality. Uh, if you don't describe reality, you're now in the world that we live in. Yeah. See, but, uh, yeah, it, there's nothing wrong with describing a person as being in sin. You don't have to go at great lengths. You don't need no, to go get a thesaurus to figure out various ways that, <laughs> you know, you just, hey, you know, you've violated. Matter of fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you in just a minute, I'm going to show you a couple of biblical conflicts and we'll see what happens in there to answer that question. Yeah. Would that be a matter of taking the log out of your own eyes? Yeah, yeah. You, you have to. Go to that yeah, like when Christ said, you know, judge not lest any, you know, that you'll be judged by the same standards by which you judge. He wasn't, he wasn't saying you can't judge. He was saying before you make an, a judgment, an assessment of another person's behavior, make sure you check yourself out because you're a hypocrite if you're rebuking them and you're doing the same thing. You know. But he wasn't saying you can't judge. If he was saying you can't judge, then churches could never practice church discipline. Yeah, yeah. But doesn't he also say you need to do it in love? Yeah, yeah we do, so we do that in... Yeah. And approach them in love about their sin. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with approaching them in love. Let me show you from uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Very interesting thing. We're having a great discussion here. Yes, sir. Just following through what uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. God is angry with us because we are hurting ourselves. Yeah. But we are angry at others because they are hurting us. Yeah. And that's you know, remember when you said the heart of the problem is the heart. It's still yeah. It's still has our ability to love as yeah. God loves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that works too. Uh, now what what I want to show you is verse uh, twenty five. While I'm doing that, I could see some of you are fanning yourself. Ah, meat locker, it's coming. <laughs> There's only two, set, two settings in this thermostat. One is lake of fire, and then the other is meat locker. So, so get ready for meat locker, it's coming. Everybody will be cool, and then you'll be going. That's right. That's many are cold, but few are frozen. Yeah. <laughs> you like that one. <laughs> Take a look at Ephesians 4:25. He's talking about now that you are in Christ, you need to walk like a believer. That's called the, the walk of the of, of the believer. And he says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another. And then he does something here, which is really interesting. Be angry. You know, that's an imperative. That's a command. It's a command. Be angry. But then how does he qualify it? Yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger is a dangerous emotion. It, it, the, the thing that gives anger such a bad name is what it produces, what it causes people to do. But he said, be angry. In other words, the anger here would be when you see the, the word of God and the person of God violated, when you see a disregard for the standards of God. Um, let me illustrate it. It's, it's one thing to be angry over the fact that so many young babies have been slaughtered in the womb in our country since 1973. It's, it's, people ought to be, have a righteous anger, if you will, about that. But it's wrong if you get so angry, you will buy a gun and you shoot the people in the abortion clinic. You understand? You allowed sin to simmer in your heart. And that's the real danger. That's why he's saying, he tells them, it's a mandate, be angry. It's a command. But do not let the sun go down. If you're angry, be angered at the, at the things that would hurt your Lord. That's what, when, when, um, when Jesus came into the temple and turned over the tables and with the whip, he was doing that because it was offensive to his father to turn this place of prayer into a place of business. So he was not protecting his reputation. He was protecting the reputation of his father and the intent of his father for making what he had made, which is uh, the temple for people to worship 
and for people to prayer. So that's a great discussion, and we'll continue on with that. I want you to look at the bottom of page one. Um, after the quote from 521 through 22, this comes from Dr. Worsby, so I wanted you to see this. He said, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord continues his frontal attack against self-righteous religious people who thought themselves to be right in the sight of God because they obeyed God's law with an external compliance. Jesus is making the point that true righteousness and obedience is much more than mere external compliance. Jesus dealt with the attitudes and the intents of the heart and not simply with the external actions. That's what's trying to be conveyed here in this portion. Top of the page, God desires righteous acts produced by a righteous heart. What's going on in the inside here is more important than what you're doing on the outside. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, testimony slander. Um, the reason that our culture can't fix the problems of a fallen culture, no matter where you go on planet Earth, you have the products of fallen culture, is because the world in, wants to act independent of God and choose its own way to fix the problem. And the one thing that they never fix with their strategy is the heart. So they'll say, you know what it is? It's, you know, the problem is we have an unfair economical, economic system. We need to make that fair. What we need, we need to get people to feel better about themselves. And then we'll solve all of this shooting and killing and what, what we need is more laws against guns, you know, yeah. gun violence, yeah. In other words, that, uh, or, or what we need, what we, we need the right kind of people in the right kind of political offices who will have the solution for these problems. And so everyone goes after the problem the wrong way. Jesus said, you know what the problem is? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And he's the only one who can change it. He's, you, you will not change permanently the behavior of people unless you change their heart. See, I am different than the way I was before I came to know Christ because my heart was changed. Peter describes it in Acts 15 as the cleansing of the heart with the gospel. Your heart is made clean. Your, 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 um, the Spirit of God has not only imparted eternal life to you, but he has also given to you a new disposition that bends your heart to doing the will of God. You didn't have that before. So the heart is the problem. I know in parenting, what we work so hard on doing in so many different ways is changing behavior. And I understand that. And, and I'm certainly not going to condone letting your kid go crazy and run wild. There are certain punishments that a child should experience for behavior that is unacceptable. That's true. But I'm really what I'm trying to say, if, if you want uh, your son or daughter to live in compliance with God's will, 
they need a change of the heart. You can, you can fight with them about the behavior all you want, but it's the transformation of the heart that makes a difference. And that's very important that we understand that here in this whole matter of reconciliation. If you're born again, you now have a heart that wants to do God's will. Now, you don't always do it, right? All right, two of you don't always do it. but the rest, yeah, yeah, in other words, it, it's, we want that. That's a desire of my heart is always to live in conformity to his will. But I have still the principle of sin within that sometimes pushes me beyond the boundaries of God. But I want to get back. What do I do? I confess my sin. That, that, that's a transformed heart. I told the guys yesterday, confessing of your sin is practicing righteousness. It's a weird way to look at it. But you're doing what is right. What did God tell you to do when sin answers, answer, answers your life? He said, blame somebody else for it. Say it was the Reagan administration or the um, whatever, your parents. No. He said, you're to confess your sin. You take full responsibility. We'll get into what confession means later. But you take full responsibility. One word you never, never want to use when you're confessing is B-U-T, but. Try to avoid that. Okay, God, I'm sorry. That was unrighteous anger. But that woman you gave me drives me nuts. No. There's plenty of reasons why we sin. Never an excuse. Yeah, there's reasons why we sin. And you can tell God the reason. By the way, if you're trying to tell God something, keep in mind, he's omniscient. He knows everything. I remember I had the privilege of seeing a young man come to know Christ, and he was probably in his third day of knowing Christ, and he joined us in a prayer meeting, and so he saw everybody praying. And so he says, Dear God, my friend Larry really needs to know you as well. You know where he lives, Lord? son, 5410... Kildare Avenue, and he started giving the address, you know, like a GPS to his friend Larry. <laughs> yeah, well, be, why? Because he didn't understand yet at that point in his life that our God knows everything. So even the sin you confess, he already knows. So just get with it. It's such a stupid thing to try to hide anything from an omniscient God. It's stupid. <laughs> I mean, he knows you sin, so get with it. Get your heart right with him, so forth. Well, we'll get into that as we go on. All right, let's take a look at, um, let's see. There's a red um, Matthew 15, 19, where Jesus said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, all of that stuff comes from the heart. So what needs to be changed, folks? It's hard because you've got you to gotta stop the source flow from where it comes. And it comes from the heart. The heart needs to be changed. And the next, uh, there, there's a short statement about the heart of the problems of problem of the heart. The internal attitude is what the law prohibits. And therefore, when someone lusts after a woman, such an internal uh, process, process passion, is the same kind of moral offense to God as if you committed the act of adultery. That's what he says. Look in 527, just a second. Uh, he says... Um, 527. 
Uh, then I say, what, what do I have here? Is it 527? Oh, well, it really helps if you're in Matthew. I was in Ephesians 527. Does not say that, what I was looking for. I forgot it was back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, which it does say what I was wanting it to say. Uh, there he says, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in other words, the, the internal is what brings about the offense. The external is the action of the offense, but it's the internal. Where's your heart in regards to that sin? Okay. So now, God wants and values reconciliation. Um, let's go back to 521, where we started, and we'll read it on a little further. He says, you have heard that, that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you. The uh, ESV study Bible, I'll quote them, it says the one who instigates the reconciliation here is the one who has wronged the other person. I like that. Uh, you're, this is the wrongdoer coming to the realization that he's got to make himself right with the person he offended. He said in verse 24 again, Therefore you are presenting your offering to the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar, and go first and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So what God is saying to you and I is before you're religious, make sure you're reconciled. Before you do your religious thing, make sure you do your relational thing. Make sure things are right. If you remember that you offended this brother, you make sure you go and get that thing right, is what he's saying. Yeah. So does the brother have to also ask for forgiveness? Um, not, not, no. Um, there's the offender and the, offend, and the, the offended. Oh yeah, I mean, if you if if you're if the offended brother or sister has done sinful things in the context of the offense, offense, yeah, it would be okay. But technically speaking, if you're the offender primarily, you're the one who is to ask for the forgiveness. I guess that's what I have trouble with because you're going to the word to find that out. Yeah. You're going to the word to find out if you are the offender. Yeah. But if you're not going to the word. Yeah then you can stand and say, well, I have not offended, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a deeper than that. It's a, it's a going again, when we talked about spiritual death and spiritual life, uh, you, you're going to have a much better fortune if you're dealing with a believer than a non-believer, for example, yeah. uh, in this area. Uh, but there's uh, sometimes communication. Sometimes you need a third party. There's, it's, we'll get to that, but it's, a little more complicated than, than, than what, it, what I'm telling you here. What I want to do now, matter of fact, take a look at 1 John chapter 3, 14 through 15. It's right there in red. 
We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So we cannot harbor hatred for brothers. That's what the unsaved do. The born-again person doesn't do that. And that's what he's trying to make known to us. So, um, all right. Uh, let me show you, because the first step, there are some several key components that we need to see take place in order for reconciliation to happen. And the very first step, I think, is the hardest one in this whole process, and that's confrontation. And I kind of wish I could think of a better word than confrontation, but I, I have been struggling with it. Um, but I want to give an example of it. So I want you to, t the ladies on Wednesday are in the book of Galatians. So let me go to the book of Galatians and show you an example. In verse 11. Chapter 2. Not the 11th chapter of the book of Galatians, which I'm also working on. <laughs> but uh, chapter 2, and beginning in verse 11. And when Cephas, Cephas is the Greek name for who? Peter. Came to Antioch. I, this is Paul speaking, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow. Do you know what's happening here? We've got the recognized leader of the apostle, apostles, Peter, and you have the apostle to the Gentiles in conflict. And so Paul confronts Peter with this issue. What is the issue? Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, James is the head of the half-brother of Jesus is the head of the church in Jerusalem. So when Paul talks about men coming from James, he means the Jews from Jerusalem, and he's going to identify them as the party of circumcision. Now, what does that mean? They were the Jewish people who believed that Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, the party of circumcision would say to you, that believing in Jesus is necessary, but it's not sufficient in and of itself to save. So prior to them coming into the community in which the church existed in Antioch, let's read verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. What's going on here? So in other words, there he was at the picnic table with his brand new Gentile brothers and sisters eating barbecued ribs. <laughs> Jews aren't supposed to eat pork. That's, I'm making that up, you know that, right? Okay. That's a part of my 11th chapter I'm working on. Um, but yeah, he was probably eating Gentile meals and many times the Gentile meals did not include kosher food. And so he was fellowshipping with them. That's a primary way to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then these Jewish people come from Jerusalem who promote the idea 
that unless you're circumcised and keep the law and keep the traditions, you can't be saved. So what does Peter do in response? He stops going to the meals. He begins to hold himself set apart. So Paul, verse 3, thir oh, and, and it spread, verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. So what's the nature of this sin? It's hypocrisy. He said, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Wow, this thing is really growing. Barnabas is known in the Bible as being the, the sensitive, caring guy, the guy who gave so much money to the poor. He was the one who enlisted Paul and brought him to Antioch, Pisidia, when there was such great conversions taking place. And together, Barnabas and, and, and Paul worked together to disciple these people. And it was Barnabas and, and Paul that went on the first missionary journey. Something's gone wrong here. Verse 14, and when I saw that they were not straightforward about, what is that that we were not straightforward about? The truth of what? Yeah. Does anybody venture to think what the truth of the gospel is? For example, how do you personally appropriate the gospel? How do you take advantage of the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for your sin, he rose again? How do you take advantage of it? Pardon me? You repent, and you what? Believe. And you are saved. So why were these... Peter and the party of the circumcision, why was Peter involved in hypocrisy in his reaction to them? What was the message he was now sending to the Gentiles by holding himself aloof from them because of dietary restrictions? Christ is not sufficient. You got it. Christ is not sufficient. That's, that's operating against the truth of the gospel that there's something else you need. You have to do this, you have to do that, and uh, in order for you to get right with God. So in verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward, no, I'm sorry, we covered that, didn't we? Uh, about the truth of the gospel, yeah, we're in there. I said to Cephas, now here it is, the confrontation, in the presence of who? You know why? Why would he do that? Why would he? I don't normally recognize that you do that or, or I don't normally suggest you do a public uh, confrontation, but why was why is that important? Because he's sinning against everybody there. He's sinning against everybody there. That's true. What else? He's a leader. He's a leader. He's a major leader. And, and there's something else that that's in the mix here, and and theologians argue about when did the church have this council that's mentioned in Acts chapter 15. Because in that council, the church decided that Gentiles are saved by faith and faith alone. And the guy who turned the argument around against the party of the circumcision was Peter. In the argument there about whether Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to become Christians, it was Peter who spoke up and said, why are we trying to put on them a burden that we were not able to keep? 
we know that people are justified in the sight of God by faith alone. So, so the, the, the question is, did this event happen after the Jerusalem Council or before the Jerusalem Council? We're not sure because, totally, because Galatians was written in 49, around 49 A.D., and so was this meeting, around 49 to 50. <laughs> so there's been an argument about when did this occur. Now, if, if he's doing this after the meeting, whoa. <laughs> you know, or if he's doing it before the meeting, this happens, and then he goes to the meeting. Now he knows for sure, hey, you can get yourself in trouble if you don't teach the Gentiles that they get saved by faith alone in the gospel. So there's some debate about that, but I wanted you to know that there is that dynamic in existence about what happened in this conflict. And so uh, he tells them in verse 15, uh, well, let me get you back to 14 because we didn't finish it all. Uh, let me read the whole 14 and 15. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile, like, like the Gentiles, he was, and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Don't you see the hypocrisy of that, my brother? And then he says to him, we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, that is declared right in the sight of God, by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. I wish I would have known of this verse when I was in St. Richard's Catholic School, and I get hit over the head by a ream of paper because of run-on sentences. That is a run-on, duplicated thing if I've ever seen anything. <laughs> what point is he trying to make here? What is he trying to say? How is a person saved? By faith. How is he not saved? By works. If you didn't get that, you need to see a doctor. It's clear, you see. Exactly right. Yeah. Is there any sense, does it ever make sense to confront people over personal hurts? You know what? From now on, I want you to write the transitions on my notes because we're going to look at that. Yeah. Take a look at Acts chapter 15. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. That, that is, there is. Uh, I want you to look at chapter 15, verse 36. We could have a lot of discussion about this one, but it, um, verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Let's go back to that southern Galatian region to Lystra and Derby and all of those other cities that we brought the gospel. Let's see how they're doing. Let's go back. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. Now the problem is that when they were in the midst of the first missionary journey, young John Mark, 
who is a nephew of Barnabas, deserted them. He left them. We don't know why. We don't know what the reasons were. Maybe it was fear. As far as they can tell, John Mark was a young man at this time. And, I mean, come on, they were, they were being stoned, they were being persecuted, they were being threatened with their life. Paul ended up in prison, you know, and so in other words, we don't know exactly what the reason was, but John Mark deserted him. I think it says in Acts, I want to guess at that, Acts 13, 13? Let's see if I'm picking out the right verse. Yeah, but now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Patmos and came to Pergam in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul was very offended by that, as you will see, uh, because now Barnabas, uh, being more relational, I mean, Paul is very <laughs> cut and dry. And so if you go back to the passage there in, in Acts 15, so 37, Bar Barnabas wants to take John Mark, uh, verse 38, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along with, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what happened here, folks? <laughs> we have the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Before we had Peter. <laughs> So, by the way, it just shows you that you can have conflict even among those who are considered to be great leaders of the church. This, this was not an issue really of, of a sin. It was an issue of preference that became sort of sinful. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Um, Dr. Worsby, years ago when I was in a class, pastoral training class, he said to, to us, he said, I'll never forget it, actually, I think I wrote it in here. He said, gentlemen, there are three reasons why church splits. Church splits. Splits happen. He said the first reason is power. The second reason is preference. And the third reason is principles, that arguing over doctrine and truth. He said, but by far the greatest reason is power. Somebody wants the power. They don't like the ones who have the power now and they want that power to come to whatever the power is needed for. And he is dead on right. After 50 years of ministry, he is dead on right. Generally, when I've experienced trouble in our church, it has something to do with the combination of pride giving birth to the passion for power. And when that happens, things bad happen. Preferences happen. We're going to talk about that. Like how do we... How do we deal with one or another over things that are not clearly stated to be right or wrong in the Bible? They're called disputable matters. How do we resolve disputable matters? Because they do happen, and they're preference issues. 
You know, one time on television, back in the day when they used to have, uh, what was it called, Nightline? Some of you older folks remember that uh, uh, with, uh, I can't even think of his name. Ted Koppel. Ted Koppel, Nightline. Man, see, there's an old man. (laughs) For you young people, there was a time when you actually had to turn the dial to get to, and it was not on live stream. It was these yucky antennas on top of your roof. Anyways, I'll explain that to you if you have any questions. But Ted Koppel had a special where he, and he laughed about this, where a church in Minnesota had a major fight that turned, it was a business meeting, it was a Baptist church in Minnesota, that a, a major fight, a business meeting, where it became fisticuffs, and the state troopers were walking these church people out with the plastic things behind their back. You know, they were being arrested. And it began with the color of the carpet in the auditorium. <laughs> if there's ever a preference issue, that's it. But we can fight over, you know, uh, so, so many things that we can get in preference issues. But here, you know, this Paul was saying, listen, I need a dependable young man. So you can understand his point. This guy has already demonstrated to me he's not dependable. I got to have somebody who's going to stay in the battle, who's not going to retreat when it gets hard. But I also understand Barnabas. Okay, he's a young man. He blew it. But that doesn't mean he's going to be blowing it all of his life. Let's give him a second shot. And by the way, just to give you an end to the story here, it turned out pretty well because uh, John Mark is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> uh, and, and Paul re- describes him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think it's verse 11. He says that he's useful. John Mark was useful to him. So it, it did work out, but it was, it was contentious. I mean, you had two of the heroes of our faith that split from one another and went off into a different direction. And so that's, that's what you call a conflict, isn't it? Uh, so you can have that happen. Well, so this, thus far we have just got to the middle of page two. Um, now let me just tell you, I want to tell you about these notes. You need to do me a big, big favor. You need to promise that you will do this favor. I might have you raise your right hand and swear in the name of the Lord. Here it is. I want you to keep your notes. Now, now not, that's, got to go further than that. I want you to bring them with you next week. And that means I want you to remember them. If you can't, if you don't trust your memory, here's, an, here's a suggestion. Put your name on the top of the notes. And you see that little blue ledge over there in front of the silver thing? Just set it on that ledge and you come and get it next week with your name on it, okay? But please, otherwise, otherwise, it's getting to the point of when uh, Bob Drews, who was in the printing business, and Marv and myself, when we walked to this church, the trees began to shake. Because <laughs> they don't want to be turned into paper, you know, that we need for copying. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> So, okay, folks, I'm sorry I ran out of time, but we'll, we'll get more stuff in. I hope I at least whetted your appetites.